Thank you, Kristen, and thank you, members of the choir. That, that is our story, and nobody sings it like our choir. Thank you so much. My daddy said a long time ago that uh, if the preacher couldn't remember what he was going to say, how could anybody else be expected to remember it? So I remember as a little boy thinking, if I were ever a preacher, I never would be a manuscript preacher because I ought to be able to remember what I say. But once or twice in my life, and this I think is the second time, I preached a manuscript sermon. I'm going to do that today. I've been preaching a series on prayer during Lent, and you've been wonderful to support it. I'm going to pick up that series next Sunday and continue throughout Lent. But we've had something happen, and some of you have followed it in, in Nebraska this past Friday, Thursday and Friday, that has um, created a crisis in our connection. United Methodist people are joined together. We are all members of the United Methodist Church, and then we have particular churches. Well, in the trial going on in Nebraska, some of you know that one of our pastors was being tried, and the jury uh, came up with two strange decisions. First of all, they voted by 11 to 2 to say, yes, he is guilty of officiating at the marriage of two lesbians, and the church rules don't allow for that. But then in the second verdict, they voted eight to five, saying that he was guilty of breaking the rules of the church. But you have to have a vote of nine in order to convict. So the pastor was acquitted and reappointed to his church. And all across Methodism, shock waves have gone out about a situation that many of us deem intolerable. And so I've wanted to speak carefully and as best I can speak God's truth concerning um, this situation. The jury's decision in Omaha acquitting the Reverend Jimmy Creech of violating the discipline when he put the blessing of the church on the union of two lesbians has created a crisis in our connection. The rightness or wrongness of such a ceremony cannot finally be determined by a legal technicality found in our book of discipline, but must also be judged by the clear and compelling teaching of the Lord of the Church, whose teachings are found in Holy Scripture. Jesus, when asked a question about divorce, defined marriage in Mark 10, 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Our Lord was, of course, redefining the institution of marriage as God intended it in the beginning. When God said in, verse, in chapter 2 of Genesis, Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. In the very first chapter of the first book in our Bible, God said, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
God's creative activity in shaping us as male and female, presiding over the joining of man and woman, was followed by this declaration. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When questioned about marriage, Jesus did not simply share his own thoughts, nor did he parrot the prevailing and popular customs of his culture. Rather, he pointed to the plan and purpose of God at the time of creation. Jesus endorsed the will of his Father, which was, of course, more basic to the Son than bread or even life itself. The verdict in Nebraska, whether issued on the basis of a legal technicality or not, represents a clear case of culture over Christ. Every person involved, the accused, the presiding bishop, the jurors, the prosecutor, and the defense, knows the mind and will of the vast majority of United Methodists, and they know the official policy of the United Methodist Church on the issue of homosexual marriage. Every general conference since 1972 has reaffirmed the biblical position of the United Methodist Church on the practice of homosexuality because there was greater pressure from our culture than ever before at the 1996 General Conference concerning same-sex marriages, delegates once more restated the position of our church, and they added these words found in paragraph 65C of our discipline. Ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions shall not be conducted in our churches. What happened in the Creech trial represents flagrant disobedience of the discipline of our church, the expressed will of the United Methodist people, the clear teaching of Jesus Christ, and the compelling witness of Scripture. The official position of the United Methodist Church with reference to the practice of homosexuality has been clearly stated again and again. These sentences from paragraph 65G should be familiar to every one of us. Although all persons are sexual beings, whether or not they are married, sexual relations are only clearly affirmed in the marriage bond. We insist that all persons, regardless of age, gender, marital status, or sexual orientation, are entitled to have their human and civil rights ensured. Homosexual persons, no less than heterosexual persons, are individuals of sacred worth. All persons need the ministry and the guidance of the Church in their struggles for human fulfillment, as well as the spiritual and emotional care of a fellowship that enables reconciling relationships with God, with others, and with self. Although we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider this practice incompatible with Christian teachings, we affirm that God's grace is available to all persons. We continue to restate our position at each general conference because a small, Vocal minority 
encouraged recently by the actions of 15 of our bishops, is forcing this issue upon the church. No church in America has spoken with greater grace and tenderness than the UMC on this complex and pain-filled issue. We have freely acknowledged that we do not know why someone is homosexual. We have been insistent that the civil rights of all persons be ensured. We have been unequivocal in our assertions that all persons are of sacred worth. Every individual is one for whom Jesus Christ died. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. United Methodist churches, to quote our own Bishop Woodrow Hearn, are open to all persons. We offer the means of, of grace to every individual. There is a place at the table of our Lord for all who repent of their sins and seek to live a new life in Jesus Christ. No church has spoken to the issue of same-sex marriages with greater sensitivity and pastoral concern than has our church. Many of us in the United Methodist family have long since recognized that our struggle to love other persons is matched or surpassed by our struggle to love ourselves or to understand just how much God loves every one of his children. Just last week, Dr. and Mrs. Maxie Dunham from Asbury Theological Seminary spent a couple of days with Jean and me here in Houston. Max's wife, Jerry, told us about a spiritual life retreat which she took with a group, including a Roman Catholic nun. Some days after she returned from the retreat, Jerry received a note from the nun which instructed her to pray this prayer every single day. Dear God, help me to believe the truth about myself, no matter how beautiful it is. The same scripture that reminds us of our lofty standing before God is also crystal clear in its call to sexual morality. The sacred order of the sexes is grounded in creation. Our Creator not only made us male and female, but identified the central components of marriage. God in Genesis 2 defines marriage as a man, as a union between one man and one woman. He tells us that there should be a public declaration, like leaving father and mother. There should be a covenant, a cleaving to one another, a joining together. And they, he said, should become one flesh, sharing sexual intimacy. For thousands of years, the church has been clear concerning the will of God for those who choose to be sexually intimate. The only acceptable context for such intimacy is a monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Jesus confirmed what God declared at creation. Our Lord went beyond the physical to our thought life and said that if we even look at another person, with lingering lusts in our hearts, we have been guilty of adultery. The most convincing witness, apart from Jesus, to the importance of sexual morality was the Apostle Paul, 
Like his Lord, Paul ties his teachings into the creation story. In Romans 1, he describes same-sex sin. Their women exchange natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. All of this the apostle said because, and I quote, although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity through the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1, 21 through 25. Paul said anything outside the bounds of heterosexual, monogamous marriage constituted a rebellion against our Creator and the divine intention of our God. Such rebellion constituted for him outright idolatry. Paul points to the nature of Christian union in many places. 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy. Add to these references in the epistles all of the Old Testament references, the ones from 2 Peter and the book of Jude. And one has to conclude that there is an abundance of scriptural evidence prohibiting same-sex unions. Some who would revise and relativize our historic views on sexual morality and force them into harmony with our prevailing culture maintain that the only prohibitions to same-sex unions are found in the old holiness code of the Bible, where certain foods are, are, are prohibited and mixing of materials and so forth. They remind us that in that part of the Bible, we find an injunction to stone any of our sassy children. They also reinterpret the Sodom and Gomorrah story and make the sin there a lack of hospitality, not homosexuality. That, as the young people say, is a stretch. Our church's opposition to the practice, now notice the word practice, to the practice of homosexuality is not based on a few fragments of scripture found in the opening pages of the Bible. It is rather made on a consistent unbroken thread that runs throughout the entire sweep of scripture. One of those who would revise our Christian teachings recently acknowledged that every single biblical reference to the practice of homosexuality is negative. For those of us whose consciences are held captive by the word, the teachings of scripture are clear and we have no choice but to obey. Now we find ourselves in, in the unusual position of having a jury of United Methodist elders saying a United Methodist minister officiated at the marriage of a lesbian couple but is not guilty of breaking any of the laws of the United Methodist Church.
this untenable situation, which is at least to some measure the fruit of the action taken by 15 bishops at our 1996 General Conference, is intolerable for the rank and file United Methodists. It puts the Church at cross-purposes with itself, nullifies our witness to the world, confuses the unbelievers, discourages the Christian family, and worst of all, puts us in clear violation of the plain teaching of Scripture. The theologian Pannenberg has recently stated that when a church consciously violates or contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture, it ceases to be a holy apostolic church. I want to appeal to our bishops, our scriptural and temporal leaders, to call a special session of the General Conference to deal with the divisive issue of same-sex marriages. The legal loophole revealed in the Nebraska trial must be closed. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I appeal to our Episcopal leaders to lead us and to reaffirm to a frustrated, hemorrhaging church that Christ is indeed our only foundation, and we will never outgrow or move beyond the clear teaching of Scripture. Let us at the same time affirm that grace is universally offered, but is not universally received. There is nothing in grace that destroys human freedom. Let us affirm that grace receives us where we are, but grace does not leave us as we are. Jesus never lets us off without lifting us up. He said to the woman taken in adultery, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. All of us are precious in God's sight, and any practice can be redeemed and any life can be transformed. As Bishop Moore used to say, if Jesus cannot be the Savior of all, he cannot be our Savior at all. This is our story, and this is our song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The cross of Jesus will never lose its power. What was accomplished there, the precious blood that was shed, is fully able to wash the world and make it clean as snow. Some weeks ago, I heard again the story of John Merrick, the Elephant Man. John's story, cast in 19th century London, England, was a sad story. We now know his body was disfigured by neurofibromatosis, an awful disease that twisted and disfigured him so that even his family rejected him. But Dr. Frederick Trevis took an interest in John, found him working in a circus as an exhibit at which people laughed. He took him to the hospital where he belonged, began to give him uh, medication with his pain, began to give him books and a tutor 
because he knew there was a great man inside. John responded. And then came Madge Kendall. She was a talented actress and a beautiful woman of high society. She came to see John Merrick one day and brought along a gift, a volume of Shakespeare's plays. John was nervous and embarrassed. He felt like the ugly beast cowering before a fairy princess. But words he could understand. And with his grizzled hands, he fumbled through the book and found the second act of Romeo and Juliet. And though his voice was broken and squeaky, he read these words. See how she leaned her cheek upon her hand, that I might touch her cheek. While he read that line, Madge Kendall slipped in and sat down beside him. And because of her long years on the stage and her memory, she recited the next line. John read the next. She recited the next. And they went all the way through that act of Romeo and Juliet. And when it was done, Madge did a beautiful thing. She reached over and took those withered fingers into her hands and then gently leaned over and kissed his swollen, leathery cheek. And Dr. Frederick Trevis, who recorded all this, said, John Merrick was never the same from that day. Every person knows, whatever our gender, whatever our standing, every person knows or should know that in Jesus Christ, Almighty God came at Calvary and leaned over and kissed the sin-shriveled cheek of humankind with the mercies of heaven. And when we claim that matchless gift and make it our own, none of us is ever the same again. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you very much. I, I, want to, um, I want us to sing the first and the last stanzas of this great old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, the doors of our church are always open. Uh, we invite you to come as we sing the first and the last stanzas as we stand, please. for sharing with us in this uh, rather different kind of service. Our pulpit is a holy desk. For 159 years, truth, God's truth, has been proclaimed from this place. And today we've spoken God's truth again to a very painful and complex issue. I hope you'll pray for our church and pray that we will always be faithful to what God has taught us in His Word. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Pray for us and God bless you.